Teens can be a scary bunch. They're at that age when their parents can be puzzled by what's going on in their heads as they become who they will be as adults. So what can parents do to help their teens figure themselves out? More importantly, how can parents help teens as they struggle with mental health? Welcome to Growing Pains, a podcast by Honey Kids Asia that explores the challenges of modern parenting and provides a safe space for parents to navigate the ever-changing landscape of parenthood. My name is Ange. I'm a mum to two boys, Xavier, who is 11, and Marcel, who is nine. In this episode, we chat with Dr. Neil Forrest of Osler Health International and a father of two about the teenage brain, particularly in understanding mental health struggles. Hi, Neil. It's so lovely to have you here with us today. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now, today we're going to talk all about teen behaviour. Perhaps if we could start with what would you say is normal teen behaviour? Sure. So as with anything in life, in people, it's it's hard to say what normal is because yes. everyone's different. But I think we'd all recognise that there are some normal traits that we see in teenagers. And a lot of these are sort of stereotypical. You see them in movies and that kind of thing. So there's a, an increased desire for independence. So wanting to do more things independently. And I think as parents, that's something that we have to get used to because we're, we're used to our kids being reliant on us for everything. And, and suddenly they don't want to be anymore. They might want to spend time, more time with friends they might want to spend less time with you. Very likely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Behaviours like rebelling and testing you and pushing boundaries, I think, you know, they, these are time-honoured teenage traits that we can probably recognise in ourselves when, when we were teenagers. They sometimes become less communicative with parents. Um, so you feel like you find out less about their day or less about their life. And, and I think a lot of parents I see have anxieties about not really knowing what's going on in their teenagers' lives. And then, of course, the, the physical changes that are going on in teenagers. So, so going through puberty, growing, changing, reaching sexual maturity, so having first relationships and that kind of thing. Those, those would all fall into the category of normal. That doesn't mean they're easy. No. Um, but we wouldn't classify them as medical problems. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that a, a doctor can't help with advice and you know, whether it's to the, the teenager or the parents or both, but we expect all those things to happen to some degree. How prevalent are mental health issues amongst teens in Singapore? And what would be some of the common problems that they face? So it's hard to get a good handle on prevalence in, in Singapore. I think there's still I mean, there's the stigma attached to, to mental health all over the world. It's not exclusive to, to Singapore. But I think in younger people here and maybe the way that the education system's set up, there might be you know, less of a willingness to come forward and talk about stuff, even in anonymous surveys, which is how this data is normally collected. So I think most countries probably underestimate it. A recent uh, study, I don't know, it was this morning or yesterday morning that I was reading from the, the UK quoted 50% of teenagers experiencing anxiety or, and or depression at some point. Wow. Um, 
it may even be higher if we if if we include the full spectrum of anxiety disorders it may be nearer 80% now not all of those people will seek help or see a doctor or a, a professional or even speak to anyone about it so it's a really broad spectrum and i think sometimes when people think about mental illness they think about you know very severe uh, mental health issues like eating disorders or or the delusional disorders like schizophrenia, but there's a whole spectrum there. So I can't answer. Way more common than you think, yes. I think, would be my answer. And then what are some common misconceptions about mental illness in teenagers? Mm. So I had to think about this one because I think if you asked me, are there misconceptions about mental health? I'd say yes, straight away. But then if you asked me what they are, I had to sort of sort of sit there and, and, and give it five minutes. I, I think the ones that I can think of, firstly, uh, that it's rare. I, I still run into a lot of people, not just young people, who think that what they're going through is really unusual and no one else feels like this. And, and a lot of them are almost relieved when I tell them that it's not. Another misconception is that it's uh, a sign of weakness or a failing and that can be from the individual themselves or from parents or people around them. Another is that it's a choice. And so that's a, a, a misconception when we compare it to, to physical illnesses. Nobody would say that a patient with epilepsy, for example, was choosing to be epileptic. But for some reason, the patient with mental illness has like, brought this on themselves <laughs> yes. or is yeah. choosing to feel this way. Yeah, exactly. And then in young people, I think there's a, a misconception that it results from bad parenting, and so there's there's a, there's a guilt attached to it when I speak to to parents that it's somehow their fault or something that they've caused. I'm not saying that parenting isn't important for psychological development. Of course, it is, but it doesn't mean that that's always the reason. And then. This is a question that is on the tip of so many parents' tongues when they have a tween or a child that's going through a lot of changes and getting into those teen years. So what are the warning signs that a teenager might be struggling with mental health illnesses? So it's a hard one to answer because there are, we're using the broad term mental yes. illness there, aren't we? And of course, there are different different types and each is going to have their different signs and symptoms. I guess if we start with the ones that are common to people, not just teenagers, to adults and teenagers, changes in behavior, withdrawing from or avoiding certain situations. It's common to hear people not wanting to go out and see friends anymore or engage in, in social activities that they might have done quite happily before. Um, there can be physical signs, so, so weight loss or weight gain, changes in appetite, changes in sleep. Often a presenting symptom that I see in teenagers is pain, so headaches, abdominal pain, occasionally chest pain, that kind of thing, which, of course, we have to rule out the physical causes of those things. But, but sometimes it's anxiety or stress. Or, mm-hmm. In fact, in the case of abdominal pain, uh, I would say more often than not, it's it's uh, that there's a strong psychological underlying to it. It doesn't mean they're making the pain up. It just means that um, it's manifesting. there isn't a cause inside their abdomen that's causing it. Mm-hmm. And, and bowel symptoms generally. So I think, I mean, we could all recognize those anxiety symptoms of butterflies in the stomach or the stomach churning, right? So there's a, there's a strong connection between the brain and the gut and most of us can handle that for a few hours before an interview or an exam or a podcast but, um, <laughs> but it's supposed to go away yes. and, and, and people who are suffering with this every day then the, the physical signs can be quite profound 
often they will seem sad. Sounds obvious to say, but if someone's going through depression, they will come across as sad. They'll have a negative view of the world or of themselves. Um, they'll feel very demotivated. If someone's anxious at the extreme end, it might manifest as panic attacks. And you might not see the panic attack. It might be that kid that's leaving class to go to the bathroom and not coming back for half an hour. You know, it's, it, 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 these symptoms often happen in, in private. I guess things that are specific to teenagers that we sometimes see, so a, a drop-off in school performance would be one, so the kid that's doing fine and then performance starts to, to tank, that can be a warning sign. Of course, there are other reasons for that as well. And aggression, I think, is always an interesting one. So we see that at sometimes a manifestation in young people. I mean, it's a, the classic one is in the emergency room. In cases of trauma, where a kid's losing blood or blood pressure's dropping or there's some internal problem, it will often manifest itself as aggression, not drowsiness in the initial phases. And that can be a really difficult one to read. And we see the same thing sometimes with, with mental health problems. It's sort of a, I don't know if it's a coping mechanism or it's, if it's just an immature response to the feelings that are going on. But the reason that's a problem is it's often interpreted by teachers or by parents as just acting out, acting out mm. something they're choosing to do as you know, something that needs to be punished rather than mm. address the underlying underlying issues. So then what can we as parents or caregivers do to help our teens in these circumstances? So this is the question, isn't it? This, this is, is the this is the point at which everyone wants me to <laughs> to give them the, the perfect solution yes. and they can switch off the podcast no and it's like, great, yes. I've done it. So um, I'm going to disappoint you by saying, you know, it's, a, it's always a work in progress. Yes. You know, it's very unlikely that you'll be able to solve all these issues in, in one easy conversation. I mean, first of all, you need to create an environment where they're able to talk to you, right? Is it, otherwise, how, how are you going to even get to step two, three or four? And that can be difficult. I, I remember I had a colleague, previous colleague, who, who used to say that uh, she spoke to her teenage kids in the car because when she was driving, they didn't have to make eye contact with her. And that seemed to allow them a chance to open up. They would tell her more when they could just stare out the window and talk than when they were facing each other in a, in a room. And I, so it'll be different for every kid, but some sort of environment where they, they feel able to come to you with their problems. And then the first thing to do would be to just recognize the problem and acknowledge it. So I think the worst thing you can do is to try and play it down straight away. Even if you think... Uh, this might not be as big a deal as they're making it. You cast your mind back to when you were a teenager. Every little thing that happened was like the end of the world, wasn't it? Yes. You know, that, that, you know, that, that relationship <laughs> that ended or that friend Friendship, who you fell yeah. out with. Yeah. And of course, we look back now and we see them as trivial things. And it's very easy as a parent to say, oh, well, you'll get over that, don't worry. I think in, at least at the start, in the moment, recognize that it's a big deal to them and acknowledge that. Listen to what they're saying without trying to fix it for them straight away. So I think sometimes they just want to be heard and they want to feel that we care and that we're listening. Not they, that we're trying to solve it yeah, for them. They don't necessarily react well to, to solutions, particularly no. ones from their parents. And I think our <laughs> initial instinct is often to jump in and try and start fixing it for them. And so I would say, you know, initially just listen, acknowledge, don't try to, to solve the problem. And if you're stuck and you don't know what to do, be on their team, work with them to, to help find the solution. You know, it's okay to say, look, 
I've never experienced anything like this before. I don't know how to help you, but there are people out there that can. Let's, you know, we'll speak to your teacher or or we'll go and see the doctor or we'll speak to the school counselor or whoever it is. There are, there are, there are plenty of resources available and just sort of help them get there. And then I think the final thing I would say from, you know, in the what to do as a parent category would be in the behaviors that you model yourself to them. So, you know, if we manage our own mental health and emotional health and relationships and that kind of things well in front of our kids, then they're more likely to pick up good habits. Yes. Um, or at least think maybe I can ask them and they'll understand. Yeah, or, yeah mm. exactly. I, I, there's long been this question about, you know, we, we know that conditions like depression and anxiety tend to run in families and people have puzzled over, is there a genetic cause that's passed down in a truly inherited way? Or is it that kids that grow up in houses where anxiety or depression are an issue are more likely to, to, to environmentally you know, absorb those those traits. The, the truth is, it's probably both, isn't it? Both. Like, like most things in life. But um, I, I think if we can set a good example, then then that's a start. So whilst we're trying to support our children, how do we also support our own mental health whilst trying to help our children that might be going through something that's actually quite stressful for us? How do we cope and protect ourselves and our own mental health? So... I think I I talk about things that you can do yourself because I think if you're doing all these things and you're still feeling terrible, then I would say come and see me and yeah. and, and we'll talk about it. But in terms of prevent, if we're talking about prevention, as one of the things that we like to push hard at Osler is preventative care or solutions that come from lifestyle rather than the medicines, if if possible. So I would say that you've got to eat a healthy diet that's low in processed food. There's there's a lot of concern around increasing mental health issues in the era of ultra-processed and refined foods. And is there some underlying inflammatory cause for that? Exercising regularly seems to help your mental health, of course, as well as being really, really good for you physically. So those are, those are two things I would get in order straight away. Some sort of mental stimulation seems to be helpful. So we know that in adults, work is protective. So people who are in employment, on average, have fewer mental health problems than people who can't find employment now. Of course, there's a whole host of work factors that could be stressing you out and making things worse, but in general. (laughs) Having a purpose. Having a purpose, giving the brain something to do seems to be helpful. And that's probably why during the pandemic in the shift to work from home and furlough and all the things that went on there, we saw problems arising. Mindful activities seem to help. So everyone talks about meditation and meditation and meditative practice is, I think the argument settled now that it helps in what way and how much can be debated. But people who've practiced mindfulness seem to see benefits in their mental health. But I would say mindful activities in general. So if you're not a meditator, it can be going for a run or spending time in nature or doing a crossword or a Sudoku. You know, it it doesn't have to be downloading a meditation app and listening to it. Getting enough sleep. I mean, maybe I should have put that number one. Um, So important, particularly in teenagers. And avoiding alcohol and harmful substances. Again, something that teenagers like to experiment with if they can sometimes. How 
about social media. How does social media technology affect our teens' mental health? So... I was watching, uh, probably on social media, I was watching an interview with with a celebrity the other day and I can't remember who it was, but he was saying that he would turn the internet off if he could. You know, if you could switch the internet off tomorrow, would, 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 you know, would there be a net benefit to society? And I, I'm not sure about that because clearly it's become incredibly useful. But if we focus on social media, it's been shown across multiple studies to be linked to depression and anxiety. And the social media companies might argue about, well, well, that's that's a result of overuse. But I would counter-argue that these products are designed for overuse. They're designed to be addictive. They're designed yes. to keep you clicking and scrolling. So they want, their desire is overuse. It increases loneliness. It's generally a solitary activity. It decreases self-esteem and a fear of missing out, which is exists in everyone, but can you know, remember when you were a teenager and you missed out on something that everyone else was going to? Now imagine that they'd all taken pictures of it and recorded it and sent it to a device in your pocket. I mean, I, I feel like I had a pretty good teenage years overall, but I, I yes. think I, even I would have found that very difficult to handle. You're making me anxious just talking about yeah. that because it was so easy to just miss out on things and then move on. Yeah, at least, at least you weren't there. There was no record of it, right? Unless someone exactly. took pictures like with, a, holidays, with a camera. Like summer holidays, okay, I missed all that fun, but we're back at school now, it's forgotten. Exactly, mm. exactly. And I guess following on from that, if someone is getting bullying and the issue around cyberbullying, so again, if someone was getting bullied at school pre social media, at least when they went home at the end of the day, there was a break from the bullying yes, before it restarted again. Mm. Now, now they can be bullied remotely in their bedroom, then that makes things worse. There's the comparison that young people do to each other, uh, comparing their lives to others and a, a sense of inadequacy if they feel they're not living up to it. And I, I think maybe as adults, we have not all of us, but hopefully most of us have the maturity to see that what people post on social media is the best 1% of their life. Yeah, it's the highlight reel. Exactly. And I'm not sure kids see it so no. much that way. And then finally, going back to my previous point, sleep. If they're lying in bed scrolling through Snapchat, then they're not sleeping and that's not good. Should parents monitor their teen's social media in order to prevent negative effects? So we, should we spend more time understanding how much they're using their social media and put in place some boundaries in terms of that? Yeah. Now that's not me saying that that is easy no. in any way. And this is <laughs> this is a thing I see a huge flashpoint when, when, when I'm seeing parents and teenagers would be this debate over how much is too much and rules around screens and yes. when they're in the bedroom, when they're outside the bedroom. I think they should be outside the bedroom at night. I think it's okay to, to limit screen time. There's a lot of debates about how much is too much. There's a problem around being able to access it at the same time as doing schoolwork. So even my kids who are not teenagers yet still use iPads to do their homework. That's how yes. the school deliver the homework. And yet that iPad is connected to the internet and, and it's got all the distractions social media right and there. So yeah, that, yeah. that's a problem. Mm. I think, you know, in terms of the sleep, people like to talk about blue light and stimulation just before bedtime, which is clearly not a great thing in terms of promoting healthy sleep. But I think also there's just the psychological stimulation. If these people were looking at screens and it was butterflies flying across meadows and classical music playing, I don't think it would cause the same problems around sleep as it being Twitter or Snapchat and look at this, look at that, 
click again, follow this link, you know, look what he's doing, look what she's doing. It's it's stimulating the brain. And so we're, we're going to bed completely wired from not just from the blue light, but from the content that we're viewing as well. Yeah. I mean, I even find for me, the biggest challenge is what other kids are allowed. Mm. So in our family, it's quite easy for me to set the rules and the boundaries and, you know, my kids don't have phones yet or anything like that. But then they're becomes this realisation that if your child's the only person in class that doesn't have a phone, then suddenly they're isolated in a way. So you then have to kind of change the goalposts for your own parenting. Otherwise, they're suffering in another way. So it actually just becomes so complicated. It in does, terms yeah. Of and, and of course, the kids aren't telling each other the truth about what their parents are on them because everyone's inflating. And so I I see this all the time. You know, I'm the only one who isn't allowed to have my phone in this scenario and all my friends are. And and we know that's not true. Yes. But of course. But at the same time, you don't want them to be left out of the conversation. I know how, you know, if I missed an episode of Friends back when I was in high school, uh, you know, for a whole week, I was not yeah. in the conversation because that's all everyone was talking about. And similarly with your children, I certainly don't want to be seen as strict and not allowing them things. But at the same time, you start to kind of compromise on your own family values just to make sure that they're not left out because that's another form of kind of being socially out of the loop is also another way to cause stress and anxiety for them. So it's like this vicious little circle, Neil, that's... I I mean, uh, we talked about prevention, didn't we, from a lifestyle perspective. I mean, them having real world social connections as opposed to digital world ones and having activities that exist in the real world like sports or music or, or whatever it is are clearly going to offer some protection. Yes. You know, if, they're, if, they're, if they're playing basketball, they, they're not on their phone in that moment. You know, if they're, if they're in a band, you know, social media might be part of it, but it's not going to be the, the whole story. Yeah, and I do think you're right. Like keeping them busy allows them time to have technology, but outside of all the things that are good for them, right? What role can schools and educators play in addressing this issue? Well, it's a good question. I, I'm, I'm not a teacher, but first of all, they can they can educate, so they can talk to the kids about these issues. That that should be one of the places that it happens, so that it's on the table, so that kids are aware. Because, you know, as we said when we talked about misconceptions, you know that it's a choice or that it's uncommon. You know those things aren't true, and so the school plays a role in educating about that. They can even teach stress management techniques and techniques and mindfulness techniques and, and that kind of thing. I, my daughter's just started a, a once a week mindfulness CCA where they oh, yes. they do gratitude and meditation, these seven-year-olds, um, and then do coloring in and things. So, you know, sort of promoting looking after yourself, self-care, as, as I think the kids like to call it these days. They can train teachers to spot the warning signs, of course. So so that's something that educators need to, to be across. They don't need to be able to solve the problems for the kids, but at least spot when there might be a problem and raise the alarm. The other thing that we can do is I talk to parents a lot about the teenage brain and how it's wiring itself through development. And you know, that's a that's an ongoing process that for some kids doesn't reach maturity until their early 20s. So they're making some very impulsive decisions and the bit of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is supposed to be talking to our amygdala and our, our the more immediate parts of our decision-making process to just stop, pause, do you really think that's a good idea or think about what the long-term consequences of that decision might be. That isn't necessarily happening in teenagers, but we can harness that. So 
we could restructure the school day. We know that they like to sleep later and go to bed later. That's part of their brain development. So is there some way that we can shift the school day later? In places where that's been tried, they've seen reduction in mental health problems and better exam performance. But even if we can't do that, could we put the more important stuff later in the day so that they're not flunking their exams in the morning because their brain's still... Because they're, not, work, they're yeah. not awake yet. Oh. Um, the other thing we can harness is their reward systems. So they're, they don't respond particularly well to punitive punishments, which is fine. Like Someti- detention. Sometimes or, there's a place mm, for that and, yes. and, and wrong deeds have got to be punished. But making reparations for what you've done wrong in teenagers seems to have more of an effect. And the same, that's on the punishment side, on the reward side, they're not great at long-term thinking. So telling them, you know, I'll buy you driving lessons if you do well this year, but that that's 10 it's months too far away. In advance. Um, no way. You'd, yeah. be, you'd be better with smaller incentives given yes. on a more regular basis. So okay. schools can definitely sort of harness some of the, the peculiarities of the teenage brain for sure. And how about in terms of mental health issues, how can schools help identify and support those teens who might be struggling? So, I mean, I, I think, as I say, talking about it first, create a little bit like at home when I said, you know, create an environment where they're able to talk about it. You know, for issues like, like bullying, for example, there needs to be an environment within the school where someone feels that they can come forward and talk about it, um, that they'll be respected, where, let's say, the institution is, is taking mental health seriously and walking the walk as well as talking the talk. I mean, most schools now have school counsellors, which pretty sure mine didn't when I, when I was at school. So that that's a great step and a great first resource. Some of the kids I see don't want to see the school counsellor because it's connected to the school and they worry that they might be seen going into the room or that it's in some way it's not confidential from their teacher. So that's fine. It can be a starting point, but if you don't want to do that, come and see your GP. You know, we're very used to dealing with these issues. We'll talk you through it and, and if needed, we'll work with the school. I mean, a lot of the talks I do on this topic are are in schools around Singapore for the parents rather than the kids just to to try and educate people. How can the stigma around mental health be reduced in Singapore, particularly among teens? So, first of all, we can talk about it and be aware of it, not be frightened to relate our own experiences. Um, I I do think it helps when well-known people or people in the public eye talk about this stuff because maybe it just gets it out there and empowers other people to relate their own experiences. Um, We can educate ourselves and each other about what mental illnesses are and, and how they're managed. It would be great to see it get parity. And this is not a Singapore problem. This is a, a global problem with, with physical health. So to be treated by healthcare systems and governments with the same level of importance as they treat preventing diabetes or, or heart disease, for example. And then I think you sort of using respectful language. So there's still a lot of derogatory language around people with mental health issues. And that needs to, to change if we want people to come forward and be open and honest, then you know, we need to be no talking, judgment them, and, yeah, talking yeah. about them with respectful language. What can be done to promote greater awareness and understanding? I mean, is it really looking at the leaders within a country or the influencers, for want of a better phrase? No, I think it's at every level. You know, it's 
people like us having conversations like this. It's, yeah. it's government ministers, it's teachers, it's parents. You know, I think it's so much better than it was. Yes. Progress has been made, but we've still got a way to go. But people want, you know, I think there's a need inside people to talk about this. Whenever my clinic organizes a, an event around mental health, particularly in young people, it's often our best attended Yes. talks is our most popular things it's the one schools asks us to come back and do again and again and so and, and, and or if we publish something online it, it gets the most clicks so there are people out there who want to have this conversation we just need to to keep having it we've talked about how we can support our teens if they're struggling so what can teenagers themselves do to better support their own mental health so I think the factors we talked about before in, in terms of lifestyle factors that we do to promote our own mental health are just as important in teenagers. I might prioritize them slightly different. I, I might put sleep at the very top. Maybe yes. I'd do that for adults as well. Um, so, And we don't make that easy for them. The school day starts so early in some of these schools. My kids get on the bus at 6.55, I think. No, they're not teenagers yet, but that's going to be a problem when they are. So that might mean a compromise on their part, say going to bed earlier than in an ideal world they would like during the week to make sure that they're still getting eight hours sleep because they probably need more than we do. And you know, if we say adults need six to eight hours, there'll be many, many teenagers that might need seven, uh, uh, sorry, eight, nine, ten hours of sleep a night. And parents repeatedly say to me, this problem arises or it gets worse when sleep deprivation has been a, been a problem. We talked about social media and managing that and screen time and, and, and that sort of stuff. A lot of teenagers don't think so much about eating well and exercising regularly because you know, they don't have a lot of health problems and old age seems a long way away, but it's still so important for their, their mental health. I mean, if they're, if they're eating rubbish and drinking energy drinks all day, you know, and we're putting that into them, how do we expect to get something good out of them? So I think... A lot of the lifestyle advice is applicable to both adults and teenagers. What resources are available in Singapore for teens, for the families dealing with mental health issues? So that, that's a lot of what I do is actually trying to signpost people to the right place. There are lots. I mean, we talked about the negative effects of the internet, haven't we? But there's a lot of positive effects as well. Um, and so... You know, there are some great online resources for, for people. And sometimes I might refer a young person just to an online resource. There's an Australian one actually called This Way Up, which I use a lot, which is sort of doctor-prescribed courses of behavioral therapy that they can do online at their own pace. And there are different ones for insomnia or anxiety, etc. That would be, you know, a low-level intervention in a child that I didn't have too many concerns about. There are psychologists and therapists who will see someone remotely or in person. There are doctors like me, schools, friends and family. You know, I, I think if you're struggling, ask for help. And there's a lot, there are a lot of things here that, you know, I just would not expect you to manage as a parent completely on your own without any outside assistance. It's okay to put your hand up and say, either I've tried and it's not working or I just don't have a clue what to do here. Yeah, or just the reassurance that it'll take time or it actually, everything's okay. This is, exactly. I hate the word normal, but it is yeah. reasonable behaviour for a teen. And then you have that and you go, okay, so for now we'll just continue as we are. 
or as you say, we very much don't know when we need intervention a lot of the time. And it is seeing an expert to reassure or say, actually, no, on this occasion, I would recommend a different course of action. It just gives you the tools that you need to well, be able to sleep at night yourself if your child is experiencing something that they haven't before or acting in a way that is irregular. I do know that when my older son went and they did the puberty chat at school, the biggest thing that all the kids took away from that chat was, and it actually made them a little bit sad and stressed, was that they said their friendships will change a lot. And it was the thing they all looked at each other and went, but you're my best friend. Like, we're no, we're always going to be friends. And they're the kinds of things that are very difficult as parents to navigate with them because it's so new and the changing friendships and suddenly someone doesn't like them anymore and the complication of that. Yeah, so I guess having the reassurance that you can just talk to someone and find out whether you do need that additional help. It just gives you, it's the peace of mind that we all need and why, honestly, Neil, I was so excited to talk to you today and I did say so off mic because it's the reassurance we need as parents that there are levers that you can pull, there are people you can talk to and sometimes it's just hard being a parent and your teen is a nightmare. (laughs) Yes, sometimes I have that conversation. I'm like, look, there's no... There's no medical problem here that we need to address. There's yes. no, you know, this, that doesn't mean that it isn't tough, but, yes. you know, give it some time, see how it goes. If this, this or this happens, let me know, but you're doing okay. Just keep going. End on a bit of a, a lighthearted question, but are teenagers as scary as they seem? When you're meeting with teens, are they a little more intimidating maybe than the parents? I mean, should we be afraid of them? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> they're awesome actually. They're, yes. they're funny. They're all unique. They think in ways that just don't seem possible for, for older, older adults and they can be challenging and they don't come with an instruction manual. No. And I think the, the, the real difficulty as parents is that they're very difficult, different to our kids where, when when they were younger. But no, they're awesome, really. And like so many of us, sometimes they just need a bit of extra help. Yeah. Well, thank you, Neil, for the reassurance and some wonderful tips and and tools for us parents. It's been a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you. No worries. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you, Neil, for our chat today. I am now joined by our podcast producer, Suf, to chat a little about today's episode. Hey, Suf. Hello. So what have you learned from today's episode? Hmm, let me think. You know, the parenting landscape has changed so much, right? And I mean, nowadays parents have to be more aware about things like mental health, which is very important. If you think about it previously or past generations, that's not something that parents will be thinking about. Uh, One thing that Neil has highlighted and I think it applies to everyone, not just parents, is to listen with empathy and not to listen to find a solution. I think it's very important because people, especially teens, when they share their problems, they just want you to listen. Yes. They just want that empathizing ear. They don't want you to find a solution to their problems. Not necessarily unless they voice it out. So they just want that listening ear. It's so true because they also aren't coming to us because they think that we actually know better than them either. They just want us to listen and be a safe space for them to be able to talk. Yeah, exactly. And I think not providing a solution also shows that it's a learning opportunity for parents as well because what you may have experienced as a teen is different from what your teens are experiencing today. So, yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, and we can't project our own past experiences on theirs as exactly. well. Exactly. I think that's another thing that、uh, the projection because wherever that we have experience or we thought that we have、uh, found the solutions for may not necessarily work for the kids of today.、Mm. Yeah. So and. Your kids are preteens. I mean, Xavier is eleven and Marcel is nine. Are you prepared to deal with them when they approach teenage them? No. <laughs> <laughs> no.、Um, look, I feel a little bit better prepared after our chat with Neil. The reality is that I'm not there yet, and I am quite nervous about it because there's so many. Parents that I've spoken to that have teen kids that say, "Oh, you know, if you have a boy, they're not going to talk to you for years, or、right. this is going to happen." And you know, the kids have puberty chats at school where they get told about all the big changes that are going to happen in their lives as well.、Mm-hmm. So, no, I'm not at all prepared, and I am quite actually daunted by the prospect of having children that are taller than me soon, <laughs> and、uh, you know, suddenly have deep voices and things like that. But I do know that. The more that we have these conversations and learn from others' experiences, the I think the better I'll feel. And just also knowing, as Neil said, there's always someone you can talk to. Yes. So yes, you've got medical professionals, and I very much believe in using their support if and when you need to. But also your friends, like other people that have children the same age, or just your mum and dad, anybody, your partner. So I'm going to stumble through the best I can, Suf, equipped with all of the tools that I can gain from hosting this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, within my own community. Yeah, it's a reminder also that you're not alone because everyone else has either gone through it or they're going through it together with you, just 100%. not in the same space. Do you think it would have been easier if you had teenage daughters instead of teenage sons? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I also think. I honestly, who knows,、mm. right? Because when I was a teenager, I was a particular way. I know that my siblings, other friends, were more difficult or easier. You really don't know. I do think sometimes it's easier when you've got a child who's experiencing the same changes as you are. So there's certain、yeah. things I won't be able to relate to because、yeah. I didn't. I was never a teenage boy, but I also wouldn't change who they are. So I'm just going to have to see how we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sof. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this week's podcast episode. Yes. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>